The higher you go in the food chain, the less likely you are to be self-aware. On this episode, how you can mitigate that tendency and embrace those who will help you lead better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 442. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. The higher you go up in the food chain, the less likely you are to be self-aware. That's one of the lessons from today's guest. And one of the most important things that we can be doing as leaders is to work on enhancing our own self-awareness so we can be most effective for others, for our organization, and of course, for our own career. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert who's going to help us to really get better at being self-aware. I'm glad to welcome Tasha Yurik to the show today. She is an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times bestselling author. Thinkers 50 has named her as one of the top 30 emergent management thinkers in the world and a top 50 world leader in coaching. She was selected by Marshall Goldsmith for his exclusive 100 Coaches Project to Advance the Practice of Leadership. Tasha's TEDx talks have been viewed more than 3 million times. She contributes to the Harvard Business Review and has been featured in outlets like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, NPR, and many others. She is the author of Insight, the surprising truth about how others see us, how we see ourselves, and why the answers matter more than we think. Tasha, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. So great to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, as we dive in on self-awareness, I think it's important up front to frame two different kinds of self-awareness that you talk about in your work. What are the two kinds and why is it important for us to be zeroed in on both? We have been researching, my research team and I, the topic of self-awareness for more than five years now. And one of the logical places to start to us was figuring out what is self-awareness. And to do that, we had to review you know, hundreds of scientific journal articles and collect data from people all over the world. And it ended up being actually a surprisingly simple answer, but something that I think has a nuance that's important to start with. So what we've discovered is that scientifically and empirically, people who are self-aware possess two types of independent self-knowledge. So the first is something we named internal self-awareness, which is kind of what most people think of when they hear that term anyway. It's knowing who we are, what we stand for, what makes us tick, what are our patterns of, of behavior over time. But just as important is something that we named external self-awareness, which is essentially knowing how other people see us. And what I was really surprised by, to be perfectly honest, was the fact that these two types of self-knowledge, again, both of which are important to be self-aware, are totally independent. And what that allows us to do as psychologists, which you know I personally find really fun, is you can start putting yourself on a two-by-two two matrix. <laughs> you know, you think about <laughs> roughly, and this is oversimplifying it, but you can be high on internal self-awareness, low on internal self-awareness, high on external, low on external. And so what that creates are these archetypes of self-awareness. And I think, you know, for your listeners, 
part of a, an initial way into this topic is to think about where do you stand? So there are people, for example, who are stronger in internal self-awareness and less strong in external, which means that you know they might know kind of what makes them tick. They might find self-examination or self-reflection as one of their hobbies, but maybe they're not getting the feedback that they could be getting. And that can be limiting in the long term. Or the counter is true. So people, for example, who are so focused on knowing how other people see them that they might either not know or they might have lost track of the decisions that they can make in the spirit of their own happiness and success. And so it's just such an important thing to start with, I think, foundationally is to check in with yourself. Where are you on your internal self-awareness and your external self-awareness? And not assuming that just because you have one means that you'll have the other. You write, research shows that people are perfectly willing to tell white lies when they're easier than the cold, hard truth. And you also talk about the mum effect. Tell me about the mum effect. So the mum effect is a, a very well-established phenomenon that was uncovered in the 1960s. So this is something we've known as psychologists for, for quite a while that's existed. And essentially what it says is when given the choice between saying nothing and telling someone something that makes us uncomfortable, you know, something that is negative information for them, something that might upset them, most people will instinctively choose to say nothing. So they stay mum, right? That's why it's called the mum effect. There's been subsequent research that's actually shown that in many situations, people won't just stay mum, they will out and out lie to avoid telling these hard truths. There was a really interesting study, just quickly, that brought a bunch of people into a research lab, and they had a bunch of paintings that were done by local artists. And they asked their participants, you know, what do you think about this painting? And they would, you know, they would say things like, oh, it's horrible. That's the worst painting I've ever seen. I would never buy that or hang it in my home. Yeah. And then they brought the artists themselves in and asked the participants to tell the artists what they thought about the photos. And you can probably guess what they said. Oh, this is my second favorite one. And I just, I love it. I love the brush strokes. It's, you know, it's, and I think we all laugh because not only do we fear that that's happening, but I think we've been in that situation. You know, we've got, it's a client presentation and, and your colleague just tanks and you're faced with the choice of, do I tell them how I actually saw this in, in my objective reality or, or do I say, great job, you nailed it, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so there, there's a giving and receiving of this. It's, you know, part of it is knowing that people are not going to volunteer the truth and we have to take ownership and get feedback on our own terms. But the other is, how much good are we really doing with other people if we're withholding things that might be difficult, but they might appreciate knowing. You know, it's 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 never a, a black and white thing, but I think it's a question we should all be asking. Yeah, indeed. And one of the things you teach is that we have these lies that we tell ourselves. And one of the lies is that I shouldn't ask for feedback. And I was really interested in the research you did. You researched a group of people who you've named self-awareness unicorns. Tell us who are the self-awareness unicorns. I just like to frame who you're referencing and studying. This was my favorite part of our research project. We didn't start out to do this, but what we initially were going to do is find people who are highly self-aware, who'd sort of always been that way in the hopes that they could tell us what they were doing differently. Uh, but what we discovered was when we asked these people, you know, empirically you're self-aware, how did you get there? They couldn't tell us. You know, they said, I don't know. I've just always been like this. So we changed our approach to say, I wonder if we could find people 
who didn't start out as self-aware, who through some magical process that we want to better understand, were able to come out the other side with high internal and external self-awareness as judged by them and someone who knew them well. Right? Oh, so they, they had to clear several hurdles. We couldn't just say, hey, are you self-aware? Come be in our research project for obvious reasons. And so they were very difficult to find. I knew that they existed because so many of these people that I've coached over the years have fit that criteria. You know, I, I have executive coaching clients that I, I've worked with that you know, literally were on the verge of being fired because they were getting in their own way but had absolutely no idea who I coached for six months or eight months or a year because they made that commitment to see themselves clearly and they came out the other side with all those benefits. But we called them self-awareness unicorns initially because a lot of my research team didn't know if we were going to find any of these people, <laughs> but we did. We found 50 people, five zero, from all around the world. There were no demographic patterns by age, by gender, by nationality, job type. So it was this really diverse group of people. And there are a couple of our self-awareness unicorns who are famous. We have one of the, the leaders of the Bring Back Our Girls movement in Nigeria who qualified as a bona fide unicorn. We had the former CEO of Ford, Alan Mulally, who in less than five years took them from one of their worst years on record, losing $17 billion, to their second most profitable year on record. Five years later, $20 billion of profit. You know, I could sort of go on and on about all of them, but they really turned a lot of the myths and most commonly held pieces of wisdom about self-awareness on their heads. And that's what's been so interesting about this process is so many of the things we assume improve self-awareness, particularly for leaders, don't actually always have that effect. And that was why it was so important to find these people and, and figure out what they did differently. Yeah, it's really fascinating, you know, looking at this demographic and one of the findings of this, and, and when we think about this lie that we tell ourselves of, you know, we shouldn't ask for feedback or, or we don't need to get feedback, is three quarters of the people you studied reported having a proactive strategy to get information from people who would tell them the truth. What did you notice on what they did to be proactive? There were a lot of surprises here, to your point. I expected our self-awareness unicorns to tell us things in these exhaustive interviews we did like, oh my gosh, I listen to feedback from everyone and I solicit feedback from as many people as I possibly can. I even expected them to say things like, I love getting critical feedback. <laughs> but um. what we discovered to that last point is, first of all, nobody loves hearing they're not perfect. But what the unicorns did differently is they, they asked for it anyway. But in terms of their strategy, I was pretty surprised that most of our unicorns had less than five people that they regularly asked for feedback from and really closely listened to. And what was even more helpful, I think, is, is the, the profile of these people that they asked for feedback from. Almost to a person, the best feedback givers fit two criteria, and we named them loving critics. So number one, the, the unicorn had to believe that the person had their best interest at heart, right? They, they, they would never listen to feedback, for example, from their workplace frenemy or from someone that they didn't completely trust their motives, you know, particular for someone in a position of power. But at the same time, they had to believe that that person would be a critic, that that, that person would tell them the truth even when it was difficult to hear. And, you know, it's sort of anecdotally for me, if I think about 
all the the folks that that I have worked with on a daily basis, there are a lot of people who fit one of those criteria, but not a lot of people who fit both. And so that was the big aha for me learning from our unicorns is not all feedback is helpful. Not all feedback is well-intentioned. And I think it's so common, especially in, you know, you think about sort of normal leadership training. We spend so much time thinking about how to ask for feedback that we're missing what I think is an even more important question is who are the right people to be asking feedback from? That's what's so fascinating to me about what you've uncovered is I think to your point, most leaders do have the thought, oh, I should be asking for feedback. And even if they're not, they know they should be doing that. And then the tendency is when we start asking for feedback is just to go around and start asking everyone. And what's really interesting is that the folks who have demonstrated a huge improvement in self-awareness over their careers, I dare maybe I'm oversimplifying this a bit, but it's quality over quantity. And what I think you're saying with the loving critics. You're absolutely right. I think it's quality over quantity with the loving critics. And then there's another dimension that I think is important, which is what are you asking them? There's a danger, I think, with the common wisdom, you know, to your point of, I'm just going to go around and ask for feedback. You know, you say, well, what am I doing well? What could I do better? The danger of general questions like that, even if we're asking our loving critics, even if it's the perfect person, is a couple of things. So one is, it makes it difficult for that person to understand what the parameters are, and therefore they might not tell you anything really specific or helpful, right? So for that mum effect reason, they if they don't have the parameters, they might hold on to something just in case, oh, you know, maybe they don't want to hear about that. But I think to that same point on your end, if you're not being specific, you're not controlling the feedback process. I, this is a kind of a silly example, but I think it says a lot. I had a good friend in graduate school who was meeting with her graduate advisor for the first time. It was the end of her first semester. She had been this person's research assistant and teaching assistant, and she wanted to ask and you know be a good organizational psychologist for feedback on how she could be better. But instead of asking a, a specific question, she said something to the effect of, now that we've been working together for a semester, do you have any feedback for me? Uh-huh. And the graduate advisor sort of paused and she looked at her. And her response was definitely not what my friend expected to hear. Her response focused on the fact that she thought my friend was wearing the wrong color foundation. Her makeup was the wrong color. And she thought that was a bad decision that she was making. And you think about that and you sort of cringe. But I think it illustrates a really important point, which is you are the captain of your feedback ship. And particularly as a leader, if you're not specific about what you're trying to improve, you're not going to get that value. You're not going to get a a bang for your buck with a small amount of time invested. So I'm thinking about a client of mine right now, for example, that I'm coaching who is working on his emotional intelligence skills, right? He's trying to do a better job of treating people as holistic humans and not just coming in and getting right down to business. And so that's actually something he's asking about. He's saying, how am I doing at, at you know, making small talk before meetings and helping you feel like I, I'm really invested and interested in what's going on with you? And he's been able to establish a couple of loving critics that, that are specific about that. You know, they'll say, hey, you nailed it in that meeting. But I also noticed the other day when we ran into each other that XYZ happened. It totally changes the conversation. And again, I think it's a nuance that our unicorns uncovered to be specific that most of us really, you know, for me, it didn't occur to me until we found that pattern in our data. 
It is the question that almost all of us ask too, isn't it? It's the, do you have any feedback for me? And I used to ask that for many years of clients. And I found that I would get generally one of two responses. I would get the, oh, everything's great kind of response, which wasn't helpful. Or I would get the response similar to your friend of something completely unhelpful or unrelated to uh, like the work or, I mean, well-intended, but just unrelated and not something that was actionable. And we had Sheila Heen on the show years ago talking about getting better at accepting feedback. And one of the things she taught me was to ask a more specific question for one example. And I like what you're challenging us here to do is actually to even go a step beyond that, which is you frame the subject and the area you want feedback on. So you come to someone else and say, hey, I am working on this right now, or I want to get better at making small talk. What have you noticed or what's one thing? I mean, it, it sounds to me like getting as specific as we can get, that's, that's better. We're going to get better data from people. Yeah, that's what I've found to be the case. There's one caveat to this. And, and sometimes at this point, people ask me, well, isn't there a paradox there where if none of us are quite as self-aware as we think we are in most cases, myself included, how do I know that I'm asking the right question? Mm. And I think that's a really fair uh, perspective to have. And, and what I would tell people is, you know, it's, it's a process. So you start by saying, what are my aspirations? What's the next step for me? Whether I'm thinking personally, professionally, you know, you name it. What are the skills that I'm going to need or, or what will I need to, to improve to make me more successful in getting there. So that's that's where you can sort of line it up and make sure that it's at least on the right path. I'm a big fan of working on one thing at a time, especially with you know very busy senior executives who don't have a lot of time to pontificate. But as you're working on that one thing, a question you can ask your loving critics is, you know, for example, as we've discussed, my goal is to be a CEO in five years, and you know I'm working on my public speaking. Is there anything else I'm missing that might derail me from that goal that you think I should know about? Mm-hmm. And that way you're giving them the goal. So you're not giving them the whole universe of stuff, but you're allowing something maybe that could be a blind spot or something that, that no one's told you yet. You're allowing that to surface. One of the other super helpful points you make about loving critics is that if they're going to be loving critics, they really need to have two things. Sufficient exposure to the behavior that you want feedback on, and a clear picture of what success looks like. Tell me about why those two are so critical. I think this goes back to being strategic and specific about how, how you improve. So when, I, when I'm working with my executive coaching clients, I do a qualitative 360 where I go and I basically talk to sometimes 30 people that they work with, including their spouse or their teenage kids or their best friends to really get a, a sort of holistic picture about them. And then we have the feedback meeting and they pick the one thing they're going to work on. But then from there, I challenge them to come up with eight to 10 key stakeholders. And the criteria for the stakeholders is very similar to what you said. It's, it's people who will sort of directly observe this behavior and who will be beneficiaries of your improvement. And, you know, you sort of think about it, there are so many people at work who experience your behavior. But if you are focusing on something specific, even if, you know, 10 of them fit the criteria of, of loving critics, they may or may not be placed perfectly 
for you to get the best data. You know, going back to my example before, let's say you're working on your public speaking. You would want to pick people who you could go to on a regular basis as your loving critics who see you engaging in public speaking. And it seems like sort of a obvious nuance, but what I find when I sit down with my clients and I walk them through this process is the nature of their goal really changes who that perfect list of stakeholders are. You know, if I'm working with somebody who's trying to improve their relationships with board members, it's going to make sense that they would want to have the board members be the people who's, who are giving them that feedback. And I think it's a, it's a step that if we're just a teeny bit more mindful about, it's really easy, but it's a step that we, that we miss a lot of the time is who are going to be the best people to give us this perspective. And even going one step further, who are the people that observe me doing this behavior that I know are already really good at it? So, you know, maybe there's a board member, you know, with whatever goal I'm working on, who is just known for being great at that particular thing. That person goes at the top of my stakeholder list. And I'm going to spend a disproportionate amount of time talking to them and getting their feedback because it's going to give me more payoff for less time invested. And that's what our unicorns taught us is this doesn't have to be a, a second job getting feedback or learning to see ourselves clearly. It really can be something we get these small, helpful bursts of insight that really go a long way. I'm thinking back to an interview I think I heard with Seth Godin a while back, and someone had asked him about how do you find, he didn't use this term, but but loving critics, essentially. How do you find people that hold your best interests at heart and are willing to give you that real feedback? And he said, it's super hard. And when you do find that person, they're a real gift to you. Mm. And I, I'm thinking about the folks you've worked with and, and the unicorns who have really done this well, people like Alan Mulally. And I'm just curious, because I, I know that the question people are asking is, well, gosh, I'd love to have a loving critic in my life, at least one, maybe two or three, and where to start. What have you seen them do well to cultivate and build relationships to identify loving critics? So, you know, I think those two criteria help a lot. And taking a cue from our unicorns, being very strict about, you know, not going after feedback from people that don't fall in that category. So I think that simplifies things. But then when it comes to, you know, how do I go from having a list of, you know, let's, let's, keep it easy and say two people to start with. How do I, how do I take the, that list and actually turn it into actionable feedback that I get on a regular basis? A lot of it has to do with what works best for you. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I have one client that I worked with in the past who was just a type A overachiever about it, which I think a lot of your listeners might fall in this category. <laughs> she was so committed to improving her development goal that she, I believe she had three loving critics and she scheduled and she would schedule them like a year out and move them if they needed to monthly meetings with them where she would take them to coffee and you know it would be 45 minutes so it would be kind of a, a reasonable amount of time she was asking and she would be very clear with them about what she was looking for she would kind of ask them you know pretty standardized set of questions she'd say as you know I'm I'm working on in her case it was it was not losing her cool in meetings when things went poorly and she said you know what observations do you have for me in the last 30 days? And what suggestions do you have for me moving forward? Those are, are two questions my friend Marshall Goldsmith taught me that I think are so powerful. Yeah. And for her, 
having those three people that it was basically, you know, three 45 minute segments that she was investing every month, no more, no less, that really allowed her to start to make game changing improvements. And I think there's a danger, especially with busy, successful people where, you know, you say you, you take a 360 or you sit down with your loving critic and you get a bunch of feedback over lunch. There's a temptation to say, well, I'm good. <laughs> you know, now I've got it. And, and even if we don't do that consciously, what really is, is what sort of put these unicorns at the next level of their self-awareness was that regular commitment. So I think, you know, if, if you heard that example of my coaching client and you thought, oh my gosh, I, I don't have time for that, there's an even simpler way. I have another client who essentially has those two questions. So, you know, what feedback do you have for me in the last 30 days? What ideas do you have for me in the next 30 days? But she will literally grab people at the end of meetings for two minutes. And she's trained her loving critic so that they know to be succinct. By the way, you as the feedback receiver can save a lot of time by not hemming and hawing and justifying and just saying thank you, right? Thank you for that feedback. That immediately cuts the, the conversation in half in terms of the time commitment. So what I would encourage people who are interested in starting this is, is start small. Even if it's one person, how can you put something in place where every month or every two months you're touching base with them one time? I think that's where you really start to see the payoff from this is it's never a one and done activity as much as we often want it to be. I love the invitation to start small with that. And as you were sharing that example, I was thinking back to having read Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor, and she used to work for Sheryl Sandberg at one point. And she said Sheryl Sandberg would do that as a practice. Like they'd be walking out of meetings to the next meeting, and that's where the feedback sessions would happen. And she was just, she did that consistently and genuinely and with loving criticism. And it's one of the things she thought was just so effective about her leadership style. And, you know, it, it's something almost all of us can do, right? We could take that minute or two to find that person in the room who is going to give us the honest feedback, especially if we've, you know, talked about it in advance and really identified someone who really, you know, has our best interests at heart. I think you hit the nail on the head with that is it's, it's having an agreement and an expectation. And, and again, it's as the feedback receiver and, and cultivating your own loving critics, but also in being other people's loving critics. I would say it can be, you know, 50-50, whether it's going to be helpful or not, if you decide to give someone else feedback and um, approach them in that manner, you know, and I think for Kim Scott, Cheryl Sandberg's feedback was game changing, but not everybody is going to be open. Not everybody is going to understand the context of what you're doing. And so, you know, I think part of this process is a reciprocity. You know, a lot of my clients, their loving critics, they also serve in that role for them. And so if you can have that expectation conversation, then it becomes really straightforward to say, hey, I know you asked me to give you feedback on this. I would like to do that right now. Do you have two minutes? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a totally different conversation. Yeah. And that's actually the thing I was wondering about too, is I think there are people listening to this who, who are thinking, okay, this is good. I know I should do this. It makes sense, the strategy. And I feel maybe a bit selfish about asking people to do this for me. And like, if I do this, if I ask people for this, what's in it for them to do this? And I'm curious how you've, when you've talked to the unicorns about how they did this, what did they do to work through that? Hmm. That's a great question. It can feel like a lot to ask, especially if you know about the mom effect, you know that, you know, there are these hardwired things that 
people have to overcome to agree to do this for you, I would encourage you to reverse it and to think about, you know, the last time someone asked you for feedback and they did it in a way that you understood the context and it was already someone you cared about, you probably immediately wanted to help them be more successful. Honestly, I think it can be an excuse we make for ourselves is that, oh, this is this huge burden (laughs) for this person when if they're really a loving critic, they're probably going to be thrilled to help you, especially if you make it as easy as possible for them. And that just goes back to there's so many ways that we, you know, consciously and unconsciously justify not getting more feedback when we know it is one of the most powerful tools we have to be more successful, especially as leaders. And so I would say that's a wonderful excuse. And I think people who are willing to push past it can really get the full benefit. <laughs> that's, the, that's the tough love approach of the day. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate <laughs> you making that invitation to us and to take the first step. And we have a first step for you, even if you don't want to yet have that conversation. Because as you mentioned up front, self-awareness is about the internal. It's also about the external. And you have a resource available on your site as an assessment for people who really do want to get some more data points right away. That's just five minutes that it begin this process. What is that and, and how would folks get access to it? This is so fun. So this is something that we actually developed for the launch of Insight in 2017. That's a subset of our bigger, more validated self-awareness assessment. And here's what it entails. So you fill out 14 questions that assess your level of internal self-awareness. It looks at things like, you know, are, do you have clearly articulated values? You know, do you know what your aspirations are? It kind of goes through 14 questions. And then you send a quiz, a version of that to someone who knows you well, and they fill it out for how they see you. And then what you get back is, going back to our internal and external self-awareness, you get a very high-level picture of which of those archetypes, those, you know, sort of internal versus external, high versus low, you fall in. And I always tell people, this is really just a free offering to help make the world more self-aware place. So I encourage you not to make any major life decisions based on what you learned, (laughs) but we've had you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people take this resource and they love it because it gives them a kind of high level gut check. And then a couple of things you can do given those results right away to become more self-aware. So if anyone's interested in this, it's just been a fun thing to have out there. They can find it at insight-quiz.com. Awesome. I am going to get the link in the weekly leadership guide. So for those of you who received that on Wednesday, be watching for that. We'll make sure to link up to it so you can dive in. Tasha, one other question for you as we finish up, you've had a tremendous amount of success in your career speaking and researching and writing books and traveling the world and talking to people about this. Since the book's come out and you've gone and you've had conversations with people and you've seen this work really take hold, what have you changed your mind on? So a a couple of things. Number one, first and foremost, I have discovered that I am not as self-aware as I once thought. And, you know, it's a really meaningful evolution for me to go from someone who, you know, I thought I literally was qualified to write the book on self-awareness. And yet, (laughs) I have so much room to improve. And to me, that's actually changed how I talk about this. We are all in this together. The fact that, you know, humans are hardwired to basically not be self-aware. Our social world is hardwired to keep us from being self-aware. It's normalized this in a way that this is really a lifelong journey. And I think for each and every one of us, 
there's hope in that. And I know that sounds kind of weird to say that learning I wasn't self-aware gave me more hope about self-awareness, but I've learned more and more that the less of a value judgment we place on where we're at in our journey and whether or not we're as self-aware as we think, the more it opens us up to become more self-aware. And I've evolved my philosophy on that by, you know, first and foremost from our unicorns, but also going around the world and speaking to leaders, you know, in so many countries and so many industries who have modeled this for me. You know, people who come up to me after a keynote where I'm talking about our research and they share with me the the most difficult and game-changing feedback they've gotten and the hope that I feel from them when they're talking about it and when they say what it allowed them to do. I really have just had, I've been invigorated by that. So so it seems weird that by realizing I was less self-aware than I thought, I was even more excited about this. But I, I think there's this, this sort of common humanity to it that I never want to forget and, and I'm challenged constantly to remember. Tasha Yurik is the author of Insight, The Surprising Truth About How Others See Us, How We See Ourselves, and Why the Answers Matter More Than We Think. Tasha, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dave. If more self-awareness is top of mind for you, several related episodes that will support you in getting there. One of them is episode 143, How to Get Way Better at Accepting Feedback. My guest was Sheila Heen on that episode. She has a book called Thanks for the Feedback. And in that book and also in that episode, she walked us through once you get feedback and you get useful information, how do you process it? What do you decide to do? What do you decide to set aside in order to develop yourself as a leader. Uh, So much there, including her reinforcement of what Tasha said of the power of asking for specific feedback, of zeroing in on one thing rather than asking a general question like, do you have any feedback for me? Which a lot of us tend to do. I used to do that as well. And right around the time I interviewed Sheila and was getting into her work, I started to shift to ask much more specific questions. Night and day, the difference, I'll tell you, of getting feedback from people and things that are useful when you ask a specific question rather than asking a general question. So episode 143 is a great place for that. By the way, Sheila is also one of the original authors of the book, Difficult Conversations, which I recommend to almost everyone. It's been on my reading list for years for leaders. It is a fabulous, fabulous book as well if you want to get better in human interactions, which of course so many of us do. I'd also recommend episode 306, Five Steps to Hold People Accountable with Jonathan Raymond. In that episode, Jonathan talked us through in detail his accountability dial and the importance of being able to address difficult situations and also to be able to address positive situations. And the reason I'm thinking about that is I had lunch with Jonathan recently and we were talking about his work and his model. And he made the point in another interview recently that a generation ago, the workplace tended to be a little more blunt. People tended to be much more forthcoming with their critical feedback. And we have rightfully moved away from a command and control culture of heavy feedback and unkindness in a lot of places. And he has made the point of we've swung the pendulum so far in many cases the other way now where we are too nice to each other in a lot of workplaces and we don't hear the truth and we hear that mum effect that Tasha talked about. And he, of course, encouraging like Tasha to really come to that center zone of how can we both care for people so well and at the same time 
help them to take the next step to stay accountable, to give that appropriate feedback. Episode 306 will be a great compliment for that. Another piece of Tasha's book we didn't talk about, but she also is a big advocate for, is being able to get feedback through a 360. And we talked in detail on that on episode 341, how to process your 360-degree feedback with Tom Henschel. Tom, as many of you know, a great friend of the show, a talented executive coach, has done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of 360 evaluations and feedback over the years. And in that episode, walks us through how he facilitates that for clients and more importantly, what you should be looking for if you're going through a 360 or about to go through that, or maybe you've been through one in the past and how you can process what you receive from that. Episode 341 is a step-by-step exactly what to do in order to get the most out of your 360. And finally, episode 438, what to do with your feelings with Lori Gottlieb. She was recently on teaching us about how to handle feelings, and she made the distinction in that episode between idiot compassion and wise compassion. That also lines up really well with Tasha's work and her call for us to have loving critics. Uh, So many reinforcements there. And of course, the call from Lori for those of us who it's appropriate to, to maybe even seek out assistance from a therapist or at least someone who can really speak truth to us. So much there as well, if this conversation is helpful to you. All of those past episodes can be found on the coachingforleaders.com website, and that's also the place to set up your free membership for access to all of our past conversations. And one of the topic areas that you'll find on the website is the topic area of feedback. As you'd expect, we've had many conversations since 2011 on feedback how to solicit feedback, how to give feedback, and so many things around this important topic. You can find that in the feedback section under the episode library, plus access to my book notes. I've taken notes on Tasha's book, and I've posted that PDF inside the episode notes and inside the book notes in the member library. You can access all of that for free, plus get access to my weekly leadership guide on Wednesdays with all these recommended episodes and links of things I found for you. All of those at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership and you will be off and running with all of us. Have a fabulous week and I look forward to seeing you next Monday. Take care, everyone.